So, yes, was I shocked? Yes. Was I surprised? No. And I'll tell you what, whether I'm up was Harry Perkins in The Great British Coat. Hello everybody, Julian Charles here of TheMindRenewed.com, coming to you as usual from the depths of the Lancashire countryside here in the UK, and welcome to TMR number 290 for the 12th of our movie roundtable sessions, in which we continue to discuss films or other types of moving picture productions that have relevance to themes explored on The Mind Renewed over the last 10 years, and I can actually say now... It's 10 years, because the first episode of TMR came out in uh, October 2012, so that is officially 10 years ago, so uh, quite astonishing, but true. Um, And as I say, um, other types of moving picture productions, because what we're going to be discussing today is not, strictly speaking, a movie, although I think... If it was a movie, I think it would be a, an all-time classic. I think it's that good. It's um, not a film, per se. It's a three-part TV series from 1988. Um, so quite new for us on <laughs> this roundtable. Uh, from 1988, uh, first broadcast on Channel 4 here in the UK called A Very British Coup, a political drama, a brilliant political drama, I think, based on a novel of the same name by Labour politician and journalist Christopher Mullen. Now, to discuss a very British coup, we are joined by two of our resident film critics, the uh, celluloidally encyclopedic Mark Campbell <laughs> and the uh, protégé of Noam Chomsky and, yes, minister enthusiast uh, Anthony Rotuno, but also, I'm delighted to say, by John Booth, the veteran... I think I can call you a veteran, John, can I? Oh, <laughs> Yeah, the veteran Yorkshire-born journalist, educator and political activist whose career in journalism has included working for news organisations in Africa, the US and the UK, who joined us back in 2016 to discuss his uh, excellent article in Lobster magazine called 15 Years On From 9-11, which, uh, if you haven't heard that, I do recommend you listen to that, which is TMR number 154. So, gentlemen, welcome to the TMR movie or TV series roundtable. Good to be speaking to you. Good to be with you. Hi. Hello. Hello. I don't know what order we were supposed to say hello. <laughs> anyway. Yeah, it's always an awkward moment, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay, well, let's start with you, John. Um, now, you're new to the roundtable, not new to TMR, as I've just said, but um, since we last spoke on air, although actually we did meet in person, didn't we, during the summer over a cup of tea? We did. In uh, a little market town of Ormskirk around here. Um, since we last actually met on air, though, um, you've moved away from London to rather quieter climes. Uh, do you want to tell us about that? Yes, I'm now living by the sea, uh, just across the Forth from Edinburgh, in a small former industrial town about the size of the one I was brought up in, in Yorkshire, in fact. And it's a very refreshing change. London was getting increasingly difficult for me as a self-employed journalist and teacher for 30 years. And I basically cashed in my chips and moved to a place that was affordable and very pleasurable it is too. And so I have the opportunity of traveling over the bridge to the Edinburgh Festival and the Fringe and various other things going on there and the pleasure of living by the sea. So uh, I'm a very happy bunny. 
<laughs> That's wonderful. <laughs> and you're an ideal person to draw into this conversation because all this business about uh, a very British coup and the connections to one can see to Jeremy Corbyn and Harold Wilson and all that. You're very much an experienced journalist within that whole uh, orbit of uh, Labour politics over the decades, aren't you? Yeah, and also politically active. Um, mm. I ran as a parliamentary candidate for Labour in Harold Wilson's second election in 1974, having been a councillor. And then I met Chris Mullin years later because he edited Tribune, for which I wrote from time to time. Mm. And also I worked briefly for the Labour Party in the mid-80s when David Blunkett, who is the nearest character I can imagine to the one uh, figuring as Harry Perkins, uh, mm. from Sheffield, you know, the Socialist Republic of South Yorkshire. And um, <laughs> David Blunkett's changed quite a bit since then, but so have we all. Yeah. So I've been involved both journalistically and politically, and then latterly trying to piece together the network of Britain in the post-war world with America and then during the Cold War and then with Israel and the war on terror. So yes. I'm sort of piecing my way through all of that the best way I can. Excellent. Absolutely brilliant. You are the person to have on the programme. So thank you very much indeed for joining us. That's wonderful. Anthony, uh, great to have you on again. Um, I know that you're poised with a mind full of Yes Minister quotes, uh, but we'll (laughs) we'll do those later. Just generally, how's life going since we last spoke? Oh, very well, yes. I've got my three podcasts still hanging on. Hanging on with the John Lennon one. I was telling you earlier, I've done about 200 hours on John Lennon now. (laughs) And I'm writing a book. Mm. I'm using a life coaching tactic because I'm a life coach as well as an English teacher tactic of uh, telling everyone you're going to do something and then you'll be so ashamed if you don't do it that you have to in the end. So I've been trans—I've transcribed about 45 conversations and I've got something crazy like a thousand pages about John Lennon and the Beatles. So that's my wow. current project. Right. But yeah, just enjoying yeah. life and, uh, you know, Good. crazy world, but. I always say to people, when hasn't it been a crazy world? Let's be honest. So, yes. um, and um, <laughs> yeah. obviously, I've very much enjoyed this. I'm very much looking forward to talking about it. Great. Thanks for coming on. Uh, Mark, um, how's life in uh, Crayford? <laughs> uh, it's fine. Chugging along quite Good. satisfactorily. Good. Indeed. And you do questions setting, don't you, for Mastermind? I wondered mm. whether you'd ever done anything on programs like this, or Yes Minister, or House of Cards, or any sort of related program. No, no, uh, no. nothing really, even close to this. I don't think. Yeah, okay. No, I'm happy to yeah. do it though. But uh, I mean, I seem to specialise in film and television questions. That's what they tend to use me for. But they're more sort of uh, entertainment or uh, Rocky or that kind of thing, really, than political mm. ones. Yeah. Or John Cage you did recently, didn't you? I did John Cage. Yes. Have you listened to that yet? I still haven't heard that yet. No, <laughs> no, I must do. Yeah, yeah, that was interesting, actually, because I obviously like you. I think I'm amused by him. I think he's very good, but I didn't know an mm. awful lot about him. So actually finding out about him was quite interesting. He's a good guy, good, uh, interesting fellow, actually. Yes. Yeah. Indeed, I'd love to have met him, but the opportunity mm-hmm. wasn't there. Yeah, he covered that on the podcast because he he worked with Yoko Ono, oh, yes. so mm-hmm. through yeah. John Lennon and Yoko Ono. Yeah. Right, let's move. Let's move back. Otherwise, we'll get into my enthusiasm for twentieth century music. Yes. Um, <laughs> okay. Um, let's turn then to the series itself. Um, now, I have to say that I knew nothing about a very British coup uh, until a few months ago. You know, I didn't see it back in the late 1980s when it was first broadcast and I only heard about it because Jeremy Corbyn mentioned it in an interview earlier this year. It was just a little remark he, he made. He sort of compared his own experience of being 
harassed by the establishment as leader of the Labour Party to the leader of the Labour Party character in this TV series, Harry Perkins. You just mentioned the name. And I think, John, you might well have sent me the link to that particular Corbyn interview in the first place. I'm not sure, but you might well have done. So uh, maybe I have you to thank for all of this today. Um, and no doubt we will talk to some extent about that interview with Jeremy Corbyn as we go along. Um, but as soon as I watched this, as they say, I was blown away by it. I think it's superb. I think it's, I, you know, I'm going to go so far. And having seen it twice, I'm going to say I think it's one of the finest TV series I've seen because um, it has so much to say about the political world and about the experience of, of people like Corbyn and maybe Harold Wilson before him, which we'll probably get into in a bit. Um, so, um, John, did you see this back in the 80s when it first came out? Were you aware of the actual production? Yes, I was aware of it. Hmm. And I think it's worth mentioning before the other two do that the actual TV script was written by Alan Plater. Yes. And that was very powerful to me mm. because friends of mine who've written about Harold Wilson and the secret states, Robin Ramsey and Stephen Dorrell, um, they started a magazine called Lobster and Alan Plater was one of the first subscribers to help get it off the ground. Oh, wow. um, mm. So Alan Plater is somebody for whose work I've got an enormous respect and he knew a lot about the Wilson story because of the original research that was done in Hull, where I think he was living for part of his life, if not the whole of his life, uh, by Robin Ramsey and Stephen Dorrell. And they wrote this book, Smear, about Wilson and the Secret States. And so I think that probably helped give him some of the insight uh, and the sharpness to some of the things which are already there in Chris Mullins' uh, fine book. And you know Chris Mullin, is that right? Yeah, I've known Chris for a, a long time. Uh, not intimately well, but uh, I met him when he was in London. He edited Tribune newspaper, the weekly newspaper. He was a big supporter of Tony Benn and supported his leadership campaign. Hmm, hmm. And he then became a junior foreign office minister and wrote diaries about that during the new Labour period. Uh, and has now retired and is living a fairly quiet life in Northumberland and brings out periodically copies of his diaries. Mm. So he's been very active in all of this. And his great plus, I think, is that he worked for the BBC World Service. So he knows how the BBC estate broadcaster operates. But he also lived in Vietnam for a while and his wife is Vietnamese. Mm. So he has that very helpful perspective yes. on British life from the point of view that other people who've lived through wars and imperialism have experienced firsthand. So he's a very interesting man, I think. Mm. And not a wild-eyed conspiracy theorist, as I think I read somewhere <laughs> no. Uh, recently. <laughs> no. no. Mark, Hello. Um, I think you didn't know this, which is a bit surprising, because I think you know most things that are on TV of great quality. So <laughs> um, it's new to you, isn't it? It's new to me. I, I think the title rang a vague bell, but I mm. didn't know anything really about the subject match until you sent me the DVD. I assumed it was something you'd watched at the time and mm. always had it in the back of your mind as being a brilliant programme. So it's mm. sort of news to me that it's new to you as well. Yeah, and you were you were pleased with it, weren't you, when you watched it? You said something like, uh, "Oh, this is really good." <laughs> oh yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I wasn't I wasn't looking forward to it because well, I thought I thought it was going to be a bit dated and stuff, and it's not mm. it's not remotely dated, is it? I was no, it sounds like it should be. I know what you mean. Well, yes. in production terms, I thought it was very slick, mm. very very pacey, mm -hmm. um, 
And the way it was filmed, I haven't really been able to find out, but it does look like they used number 10. It's certainly the outside of it. Yeah. It looked very realistic. Obviously set in London, lots of London landmarks and, mm. and locations. It gave mm. it a, mm. an excellent air of a very missilitude, if you if you also we've got to get that word into the programme somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anthony, uh, it was new to you too, I believe, but you I know you immediately thought of yes minister, but yeah, <laughs> go on. Yeah. <laughs> uh, make the connections. I, I knew the I knew the phrase. The phrase is one of those ones that's been sort of bouncing around my head for ages, you know. No, I didn't know it until you alerted it to me a few months ago. Mm. And I immediately, as soon as I started watching it, I saw the similarity with House of Cards. Mm. Yes. Honestly, I'm not just saying this because we talk about this one. I thought this was better than... I'm talking about the British House of Cards, by the way. Mm. And mm. then I watched it. I just watched it again. But obviously watching it for a podcast, you analyse it mm. a bit more. And I just mm. thought it was fantastic. And something you said earlier, mm. I see this as a film, really, because I, mm. I watched the three episodes back to back. I fast-forwarded the music. I think it plays perfectly as a two-hour, 20-minute, whatever it is, film, really, you know? Mm-hmm. Yes. But I almost see it like that. But yes, absolutely. Yeah, with, um, it's really, yes, Prime Minister. I mean, there, there's even the, one of the same actors, the, the guy who gets in a road accident, okay. who's um, advising him about nuclear disarmament, was also advising Jim Hacker about the nuclear button. <laughs> That's an amazing connection there. <laughs> there's one line, honouring our election pledges has a certain novelty value, and that's exactly what Sir Humphrey says, isn't it? Oh, that's a very novel idea. Why is that so? Yeah, that kind of thing. <laughs> no, we think, yeah. don't we, that this Prime Minister is pretty much based on reality and just exaggerated. So uh, anyway, just loved it, yeah. Absolutely fantastic. I wonder to what extent Plato was influenced by Yes Minister itself. Have you had any idea on that, John? Uh, I don't know anything about that. Mm. My guess would be he would feel some animus because I always thought Yes Minister had a very, not pro-conservative, but quite a reactionary view about things. Um, I just remember years ago in the 80s when I worked for the NUT, I got a warning from a friendly journalist that there was an episode of Yes Minister due to come out, which would be attacking the NUT. (laughs) 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 And it duly appeared, and it contributed to me to that (laughs) general view that we were in a state of decline, and these people were in business of managing decline in a way, and Thatcher was challenging a bit of that kind of thing. But... uh, uh, that's all I know, so I have no knowledge of Alan, Alan Plater's involvement <laughs> no. in that kind of thing. No, well, p- perhaps everybody felt a bit got at through Yes Minister, whichever side of the, uh, yes, I think <laughs> the political lines you're on. I think on. it was very clever yeah. TV. I think it was wonderful. It was, it was. Yeah. It's almost exactly the same time as well. I think even the second yes. series of Yes Minister mm. was 87 or 88. I can't remember, but it's. Mm. I think it was yeah, just before a very British coup. Yes, just, yeah, yes, yeah, yes. Yeah. I didn't know House of Cards, actually. I did look at the... Because I knew we were going to discuss this, so I had a look at the... Uh, the three series, aren't there? House of Cards was the first series, and this is with Ian Richardson, wasn't it, as uh, the chief whip, Francis Urquhart. And uh, yes. I have to say, I, this business of him looking at the camera all the time and talking to the audience, they didn't quite work for me. So I was very yeah. pleased that that sort of thing didn't happen in, in a very British coup. But it's a very different uh, programme, of course. Mm. Um, yeah, the, the other thing was, what's that thing, he, that catchphrase he has? Uh, I couldn't possibly comment. Yeah. It's just a bit, yeah, it's just a bit too much. You, you might think so, but yeah, yeah very that's right. Yeah, very much too, felt like yeah. it didn't 
really need to do that. But House of yeah, Cards is yeah, still yeah. worth watching if you like this. Episode. Oh, it is. Yeah. It is, indeed. Anyway, we're not doing that one, so no, <laughs> attempting no. to go <laughs> off at a tangent. Um, all right, so um, let's have a, a brief plot summary so uh, people who don't know this, which is, I think, in this case, going to be probably the vast majority of people, um, so that they can get an idea of what this is about. Um, so uh, here we go. Set in 1991, the near future, of course, at the time of making, Harry Perkins, a working-class left-wing leader of the Labour Party and Member of Parliament for Sheffield Central, actually, well, actually in the story, becomes Prime Minister. Uh, his government quickly reveals its intentions to pursue a long list of radical policies, such as unilateral nuclear disarmament, removal of all US military bases from UK soil, ending all news media monopolies, open government, etc., etc., much to the great displeasure of various people in positions of deep state power, such as newspaper magnate Sir George Fison, his political and civil service friends, Sir Percy Brown, the head of MI5, whose ancestors, he says, stretch back unto the Middle Ages, and indeed significant portions of US power involving both the White House and the CIA. But... Perkins is not without friends among his cabinet members, and indeed some others to help him in his political role. So the Labour government starts to pursue some of its policies and finds that things get decidedly tricky. As they begin to discuss nuclear disarmament, they find that international financial pressure bears down upon the UK economy, forcing Perkins to look to the International Monetary Fund for help, with, of course, threat of austerity to the economy. As they turn instead to the International State Bank of Moscow for help, which agrees to lend with no strings attached, they of course get accused of cozying up to the communists. And the guy who arranged the deal, uh, Foreign Secretary Tom Newsom, played by the excellent Jim Carter, uh, gets trashed in George Fison's newspapers over a personal love affair and false concerns about national security. To make matters worse, the Power Workers Union, whose leader, it turns out, has been rather suspiciously on sponsored lecture tours in the US, uh, refuses to go along with the government's policies, leading to strikes that plunge the nation into a season of power blackouts that, naturally enough, cause a significant drop in Perkins' popularity in the opinion polls. But all is not lost, as Perkins' press secretary, played by Keith Allen, eventually works out that there is indeed something of a conspiracy going on, involving members of an upper-class club, including Sir George Fison, newspaper man, Sir Percy Brown, MI5, and at least one member of Perkins' cabinet, his Chancellor of the Exchequer, who the powers that should not be have already earmarked as a desirable successor as Prime Minister, and who has, it turns out, social connections to a rather pretty CIA operative. And so, armed with this knowledge of a conspiracy, or rather the very heavy suspicion of a conspiracy, Perkins is able to threaten a public inquiry, thus giving him a little pushback against his political enemies. Thus emboldened, his government starts the process of dismantling nuclear weapons in the face of opposition from military leaders, but the assassination of Chief Science Advisor to the MOD, Sir Montague Kowalski, staged as a road accident, brings that to a sudden halt. After which, the deep state tries to play its trump card against Perkins. Sir Percy Brown accuses Perkins of dodgy dealings in connection with the Moscow loan to the tune of an eye-watering £300,000, seemingly strongly evidenced by Swiss bank account receipts, and suggests that Perkins should perhaps resign instead of 
this damaging, though false, story going public. Reluctantly, Perkins agrees. He prepares to read his resignation speech to the world on live television. But at the last moment, sitting in front of the autocue, he suddenly goes off script and blows the plot against him to the world. And thus begins a new era of openness in government or a military coup against him or well we're not sure (laughs) because it ends quite ambiguously and uh, no doubt we'll talk about that in a bit so Mm -hmm. there it is uh, much left out of course Mm -hmm. but uh, that's an outline yeah 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 Mm -hmm. all right so uh, just a few basics about this and as I said gentlemen please do feel Free to chip in at any moment. So, okay, this is a three-part series, first shown, as I said, on Channel 4, 1988, um, adapted, as we've said, from Chris Mullen's novel of 1982, also called Very British Coup. And uh, we mentioned Alan Plater was a screenwriter. Done a lot of other things. The only things that I recognised were Zed Cars, Softly, Softly, Delisle and Pasco. So he seemed to have done an awful lot about crime and the police. So um, fits rather nicely, I suppose, with with this. Yeah. Um, Mick Jackson directed it. Not somebody I know of much. The Bodyguard he uh, directed, but done an awful lot of films and TV series. Um, something you might know about, Mark, the cinematography by a guy called Ernest Fincher or something like that. Uh, uh, Doctor Who connections, I believe. Yeah, he he was cinematographer for the, for, for the early series of the Doctor Who revival in 2005. Ernie oh. Vin- Vince. Uh, Vince. Yes, a- <laughs> which I hated his stuff on Doctor Who, actually, but the stuff here is really nice. I think this was all shot on film, I'm assuming, because it's back in, what, 88. Mm. It's all got a lovely filmic look to it because it is shot on proper film when doctor came back it was video treated to look like film and it was uh, looking at it now it's incredibly cheap but no i thought the cinematographer on this was lovely i didn't pick up on your summary at the end of the, sh- the shadow of a soldier i didn't get that at the end oh i saw just um a shoulder with a few stars on it oh uh, did you say a shoulder or a, so- or a soldier I, thought you saw- <laughs> I saw the shoulder of a soldier oh, oh. <laughs> it just 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 implied that there was a sort of something brewing that, that's all yeah, yeah okay i didn't get that at all but so, mm. yeah. it was very subtle yeah mm. probably too subtle <laughs> yeah slightly no i thought i thought that the direction and the editing mm. was excellent Yes. In terms of the shots were so well orchestrated, weren't they? Some of the longer shots, they would pan around and they would the camera would be moving around people and ending. They just sort of start and end on a lovely image. It was mm. it was really really nicely made mm. and it, uh, very well edited as well, wasn't it? Because you'd, yeah, you'd yeah. often have sort of parallel yeah. lines of story, wouldn't you, going on at the yes. same time, and so they'd have to cut back and forth between scenes. Yeah, and yes. that worked so incredibly well. It must have been incredibly intricate to try and put that together, but they they, they pulled mm. it off. Yeah. The thing, the thing I loved was how quickly it moved because it reflects mm. that world. It's like, oh, the, the wife commits suicide mm. and it's a tragedy, but that world moves on. Mm. You know, no yeah. one's going to cry for her for more than, yeah. obviously yeah. the guy, yeah. her husband is, but yeah. the other people, they're not going to cry for more than 48 hours and everything moves on. So I think that worked perfectly. It didn't really linger on anything. You know, mm. that world just Ooh. moves on so quickly. I see Mick Jackson also directed Threads, which is an amazing BBC documentary style drama about a nuclear bomb going off in Sheffield. Oh, gosh. Which I'd love to cover sometime because it's superb. Documentary style. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, It's it's very, very bleak (laughs) indeed. Yeah. I thought John Keane's music 
worked. Mm-hmm. Um, there's nothing memorable about it, I thought, but it, in a sense, it didn't need to be. It just needed to have that sort of pulsing menace. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, often it was just a single low note, wasn't it? It was just sort of grinding in the background, making you feel like, oh, heavens, there's some sort of conspiracy going on, which of course there was. Yes. Um, and it worked very well. Great to use Mozart's music, I thought. Mozart's great mass at the beginning. Yeah. We'll, we'll talk about that in a minute because um, I think that worked really well. Um, program consultants. Now, it says that Alistair Campbell, of all people, mm. was a consultant for this, although the spelling's different, but I presume it is, in fact, the Alistair Campbell that we know and love. Right. <laughs> um, I looked him up. He's got a slightly peculiar way of spelling his name, hasn't it? A-L-A. Um, I think on the BFI, it listed him with the correct spelling as being the consultant for the program. So I sort of took that as a fairly hmm. authoritative source, really, for that, that it is him. He's not that old, though, is he? Wouldn't he have been a bit young? 88? Um, well, how old is he? 16? Probably 16 now. So what would that be? Uh, I suppose. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the Keith Allen character was obviously was pretty accurate in him. And yeah, that's I point. thought that was, yeah, I thought it would make sense if he was the advisor for it. Mm. Mm. So it could have informed the manner in which he was uh, director of communications and strategy for um, mm. Tony Blair. Who knows? Yeah, he got oh. some good ideas, didn't he? <laughs> Consulted. <laughs> uh, lots yeah. of few ideas. Yeah. Mm. And uh, I noticed also Duncan Campbell, so another Campbell, but this, John, is this the guy, the journalist, I believe, who unveiled things like Echelon? Yeah, and, uh, uh, yeah. Th- there are two Duncan Campbells, so I don't ah. know which one this refers to. Right. There's one Duncan Campbell who was very keen on researching intelligence networks, and particularly the use of electronic surveillance and so on and so forth. Hmm. And then the other Duncan Campbell is a former crime correspondent of The Guardian. Ah. Uh, So I don't know which of the two that would be. No. I suggest that it's the first, simply because there was so much about surveillance Mm. in this film. Yeah. And indeed, the echelon thing about sharing intelligence and each side of the pond spying on the other and sharing intelligence that way, that theme came out in the TV series, didn't it? So Yeah. yeah, it could well have been him. We don't know for sure. Okay, um, there was another attempt at um, an adaptation of this novel in 2012 called Secret State, Mm. starring a guy called Gabriel Byrne. I started to watch that, and I'm afraid I gave up. It just didn't seem to have any of the charm that this this has, so um, I won't be talking about that. It's, it's, Um, It's an interesting film to watch. It pursues some of the themes about media ownership and its closeness to the intelligence services. And it's based on some degree on an incident which did happen at American base, where there's an accident that could have led to some nuclear explosion. Uh-huh. And so there's some basis to it all. But the dynamics of how the intelligence services work for newspapers and as a journalist, right. they got a lot of the journalism stuff right about all of that kind of thing. Right. And on targeting a Labour MP who had, you know, classic compromise stuff, had had a relationship with a woman who was also seeing a Russian spy. Ah. So it's a good piece of work. And I saw Gabriel Byrne do his show at the Edinburgh Fringe a few months ago. And he's an intelligent and radically minded actor for whom I have a, a lot of time. Okay. I think the problem is that having seen the 1988 production, it was so different than trying to look at this other one. Yeah, sure. You know, because this one sure. is, is very atmospheric. It's quite slow in its approach. In order to try and build up 
atmosphere and yeah. and I didn't feel the characters were quite so bold as they were no. and, so, and so all of that no, was so different I perhaps was prejudiced when I was looking at it but now you've said what you've said I will, will look at that again with different eyes yeah yeah yeah. Okay, so the cast. Um, and the thing with this is that I think, I think as you said also, Mark, the cast is just excellent right across the board. So who do you talk about? Mm. So I think mm. we just have to select a few. And the most obvious one, of course, is the uh, the, the, the Prime Minister himself, uh, Harry Clement Perkins, played by Ray, now is it McAnally or McAnally? I've never gone. <laughs> McAnally, I think. Yeah. We all agree? McAnally. Yeah. All right. I I thought was just absolutely brilliant in this part. I thought it was an incredible performance, to be honest. I actually believed he was Harry Perkins while I was watching it, you know. Um, And and I felt like, I really want this chap for Prime Minister. You know, can't he be real? (laughs) Um, Tremendous. Um, But I think we said before we started recording, that he was actually an Irish actor putting on this Sheffield accent. Did incredibly well. Yep. Yeah, John, was that a pretty authentic Yorkshire accent? Because it seemed I like, think so. sounded like yeah. it to me. Yeah. I thought he did an excellent job, and he just came across as a very rounded character as well. Yes. Yeah, he had that look in his eye. He had that kind of steely look in his eye. Yeah, definitely. I love the scenes where he's playing darts and he's talking to Keith Allen's <laughs> character. Yeah. That's just fantastic. Yeah. Mm. talk because I think his grandfather wasn't it had a. Some sort of industrial accident didn't yeah, get any I compensation. That's right. That's right. Oh, it's just brilliant. Yeah, he'd been splashed by molten steel. He said, and yeah, oh, saying yeah. splashed trivializes it. You know. Yeah. 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 Mm. Just perfect. I think he won a BAFTA, didn't he? Yes. Yes. I think yeah, so. he did. Yes. Yeah. Yes. yeah. Well deserved. Absolutely. Mm. Yeah. Um, what do you think of the character? I've read that he was a sort of cross between Tony Benn and John Prescott. What do you think, John? <laughs> <laughs> I think that may be not too bad a combination of the people. He's certainly a long way from the character who immediately came to mind when so much of this was based on Sheffield, because at the time this was made, David Blunkett was transitioning from being the leader of the so-called Socialist Republic of South Yorkshire, based in Sheffield, to becoming a member of parliament. He was from a poor family in Sheffield. He was obviously severely disabled through being blind, and had a real struggle to get to where he did and was very admirable. I met him when he was a member of the Labour National Executive before he became an MP. But he had some of the radicalism of the time, which was obviously arising as a result of opposition to Margaret Thatcher and what subsequently became the minor strike. But he didn't have that wider perception that the character played by Ray McNally shows of an an understanding of the international dynamics and particularly the influence of the United States on domestic British politics. And of course, he subsequently became a a great supporter of Israel in the war on terror as Home Secretary and all the rest of it. Um, So Tony Benn, obviously, he's from a a different social milieu. And John Prescott has a bit of the belligerence, but never <laughs> he, he, he never got into the intelligent understanding of the world of the characters that Chris and Alan Plater portray in Harry Perkins. Harry Perkins was a working class hero with a wider perception of the politics of the world. Mm. And there's been hardly any of those people in the Labour Party in my lifetime. And what do you think of the connection to Jeremy Corbyn? Any similarity there at all? Well, I think they both were aware of the same powerful dynamics. Yes. I mean, Jeremy's second wife, Claudia, 
her family were victims of the Pinochet coup in Chile yeah. and had to flee to Britain, which is where Jeremy met her, I think, through Chile Solidarity. So Jeremy had that wider international perspective, which I think to some degree Harry Perkins had, mm. but not the working class organic feel that Harry Perkins has for his electorate and the poorer part of the population in general. Mm. But he was up against the similar forces. Mm. And to some extent, the Cold War had ended, although they tried to smear him as a Czech spy and so on when he became <laughs> leader. Yeah. It was the war on terror network yes. that really did for him, which was the Israeli lobby and the labor anti-Semitism smears. And so that we didn't have any of that at the time of Harry Perkins. No, no, that, that was a substitute, really, wasn't it, for the Cold War stuff? Yeah. Uh, we'll, we'll come to that uh, oh, yeah. in, in a bit, no doubt. Yeah. Um, what about um, another name I can't pronounce, Tim McKinney? Or is that right? Go on, correct me again. Tim McKinney. Yeah. Thank you. Um, so he played the character of Fiends, yeah. who was the assistant to uh, the head of MI5, Sir Percy Brown. And I wanted to make note of this because I really only know him from... Captain Darling in Blackadder. Uh, yes, so I kept yes. on thinking of that. But um, he was so different in this. Um, such a consistently cold character, which I think he played very well. I, I will always love Tim McAnerney for Lord Percy and Captain Darling. So he'll always mm. be in my affections. But <laughs> I thought it was a, right. uh, I don't know, yeah. a tiny bit cartoony. Just a tiny mm. bit. Okay. And he didn't seem very threatening. There was that bit where um, he visits Helen, the one that Perkins mm. had an affair with. And he... I really like that scene. Go on, pull it apart. Oh, did you like it? Yeah, yeah, yeah I did. No, it's yeah. just that one bit where he said, I think you should be discreet, and then he looked over at her children. Yes. I mean, we get the point, and mm. I'm sure that happens. Mm. Um, yeah, but the, thing, the thing about that is, well, the reason why I like that is because that's exactly the opposite of what we were talking about before when we talked about Capricorn 1, yes. and the threat that was made there about, you know, think of your families, and then they went, because there's a, a device on the plane, and they went right over the top about it, and we said at the time, yes. you didn't need to say any of that, you just needed to say, think of your families. And I thought, this is actually the kind of thing that would happen in reality. You would look out the window, you'd look at the children, and you'd look back, and you don't need to say anything. And I thought that really worked well, actually. But there you go. I mean, we... <laughs> We used to say that about Obama, didn't we? Hmm. Talking about that when he was president. All they have to do is say, hi, how's the family? That's all you've got to do <laughs> with a certain look in your eye. So. You don't have yeah. to do anything else because yeah. they get a message, you know? Hmm. It's clear. No, I just, maybe it's, I just associate him too much with Blackadder and I don't know. Okay. He was in yeah. Notting Hill, I think, but I don't know much else, but I think he's a great actor, but hmm. I just didn't seem too threatening to me. But anyway, yeah. please feel free to scream. Mm. <laughs> Mark. Hello. I feel like you want to say something about that. Well, no, I'm gonna, I didn't want to interrupt John, but sort of mention of Tony Benn. Hmm. Um, I've got the Benn Diaries. I think I've read them all. And I'm hmm. just sort of looking through. And he does mention a, a very British coup in the diaries. Do you want me ah. to read this little bit? Hmm. Yeah, so it's, quite, it's actually quite interesting. Um, hmm. So 11th of October, 1981, this is. Okay. I read the typescript to Chris Mullins' new novel, A Very British Coup, the story of how a Labour government elected in 1989 is brought down by the security services. He goes on to sort of talk about Harry Perkins a little bit and then says, uh, to cut a long story short, he's brought down by a scandal. It's very well done. I gave Chris a couple of hints and he's going to change a few details. Hmm. So he has a sort of a slight input into the story there. Uh, he also mentions it one of the time. OK, so this is 1987. So this is still talking about the book. Tuesday, 17th of March, my first visitors at 9am were Alan Plater, the playwright, Mick Jackson and Sally Hibben, who I think she was a producer, yes. who were turning Chris Mullins' book, A Very British Coup, into a three-part television series. 
They wanted to ask me what situation would face an incoming radical prime minister, what his relations would be with the security services, the Americans, the governor of the Bank of England, and so on. Uh, in a way, Chris's book has been a bit overtaken by events in a number of respects. First of all, the likelihood of a left-wing Labour leader is absolutely minimal. Uh, <laughs> secondly, there won't be a Labour government. This is 87. Uh, thirdly, when Chris wrote about dirty tricks in 1982, they were considered a bit way out, but are now sort of taken for granted. Uh, however, the general idea is interesting, and I thoroughly enjoyed meeting them. So I just thought I'd throw that in as a couple of yes. mentions by the fabulous Tony Penn. Yes. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Indeed. Um, yeah, Chris and Tony were obviously extremely close. I'm sure Chris drew on a lot from working on Tony Benn's campaign. And obviously, he was very critical of American foreign policy in relation to Vietnam, where he'd been and where he met his wife and so on. And just to mention in passing, Julian, that the character <laughs> Helen Jarvis is played by Keika Markham in that famous scene with the young spook. And of course, she was deeply involved and may still be in radical left politics, yeah. um, which is a partner of Corinne Redgrave. Um, okay. So mm-hmm. she's somebody for whom all of this, I mean, this is not to question her abilities as an actor, mm-hmm. but obviously it's something which she had some real experience of. Uh, yeah. I forget which left group she was part of, mm-hmm. but uh, she was very actively committed her and Corinne Redgrave together, I think, and Vanessa right. Redgrave. So that's just a small on mm. passant. Mm, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Mentioning of the cast, Philip Maddock, I thought, stood out hmm. for me. Yeah. Sort of newspaper entrepreneur, sort of Maxwell Murdoch style. <laughs> I mean, slightly yes. slightly cartoonish in a sense that you'd often see him sort of <laughs> in a swimming pool or in a jacuzzi. Yeah. <laughs> on, a, on a lilo. He was on a lilo, wasn't he? With the yeah. yeah. But I mean, yes. it's very believable. I think if you've read stuff about those two, you know, you think, yeah, it's, it's perfectly reasonable that he would be doing that all the time. Oh, yes. yeah. Yeah. But I thought he was acting. It was a light touch. It was a light touch that worked, didn't it? Yeah, it worked completely because he's a larger-than-life character and I think that came across. Mm. I thought Philip Maddock, another excellent actor, so it was was very good. Mm -hmm. I just wanted to throw a little thing in here. Um, A chap called Alan McNaughton played Sir Percy Browns as the head of Mm. uh, MI5. I enjoyed that. Um, Apparently in the book called Sir Peregrine Craddock, this was, I think, the only name change... And I wonder whether that was because Sir Peregrine Craddock, it is believed, was named after Peregrine Worththorne, oh. ah. <laughs> who wrote a piece in the Sunday Telegraph in 1979 called When Treason Can Be Right. Yeah. And he allegedly yeah. wrote this. Let me just turn it here. I could easily imagine myself being tempted into a treasonable disposition under a Labour government dominated by the Marxist left. And he goes on. Um, such as um, an official of the CIA who sought to enlist one's help in a project designed to destabilise this far-left government. So, I mean, maybe when it came to doing this series, they thought, "Mm, maybe that could be challengeable. (laughs) I don't know. Uh, So let's just change the name. That's the only name that I I noticed, the only shift I noticed there. Mm. Also a city name. (laughs) Yes, that's true. That's true. (laughs) Percy Brown's a better name. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay, um... We we said a little bit about the production so far, but no, a couple of other things I noticed. I, I really did like the opening sequence, this superimposing a Molotov cocktail yeah. over Big Ben and the Palace mm. of Westminster, over the top, of course. But I suppose this is kind of the image that might have been in in the minds of some of the people who were fearful about what might happen, being whipped up by the paranoia of the situation. So it, it captured that rather well. Plus this Mozart at the same time, 
mm. with a nice malevolent bass note that was in dissonant relationship with it. I loved all that, mm. that, that opening, but it worked really mm. well. Um, and then cutting to that first scene, yeah. <laughs> that first shot. Go on, Mark, tell us what happens. Uh, the first shot is of urination occurring. <laughs> <laughs> Which I suppose it's... in lieu of uh, naked male swimming, we'll have to just go for that, won't we? <laughs> yes, I think so. John, in case you don't know, that's a theme that we have going with this particular series. Oh, we, we vowed only to cover productions that have uh, naked um, swimming in. So, um, yes, there we go. Um... Thank you for throwing that. <laughs> no, it works really well, doesn't it? Because it brings the whole thing right down to, oh, yeah. to earth. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, so, and he's whistling at the same time, isn't it? Yeah, wonderful moment. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, so I think the script was pretty flawless, actually. Yeah, wonderful. So let's move on to the the themes then, because there are so many themes explored in this. Uh, we've touched on surveillance. It was a big thing in this production. I mean, right from the word go, things were being said in the script pointing to this. Um, you know, when Harry first gets into number 10, he just lifts the phone, doesn't he? And he says, um, does any of this get recorded? And of course, Sir James says, None of it, Prime Minister, I can assure you of that. But at the same time, we're actually seeing that it is indeed being recorded. Mm. Um, this keeps on cropping up, doesn't it, throughout, that there really is this, mm. it's very important as far as the deep state is concerned, this very important dimension of surveilling those who are believed to be um, in control of the situation. Mm. Just going to say, I've recently read Spycatcher, mm. which I found a bit of a struggle, a bit boring, but it certainly makes it very, very, very clear that everything is recorded, everything is surveilled. Right. Every phone call from every politician is is a record of it somewhere. Yeah. yeah. At the time that the series was shown, this was not as widely known as it is now. Mm. We now know that GCHQ and the CIA and the NSA have got this network in which they monitor each other's calls to stay strictly within the, <laughs> the national legislation. Yeah. But the information mm. is made available. But at the time... All of that was shocking. Mm. And, of course, in the context of the times, remember, too, that people like Glenys Kinnock, the wife of the Labour leader, was going to Greenham Common to protest against American cruise missile bases mm. uh, being set up under the Reagan-Thatcher regimes. And it was very much expected that she would be monitored for all that she was doing and all that Neil Kinnock was doing and so on and so forth. Right. But of course, this was only believed by people who were on the left or the yeah. fringes of British politics. It wasn't thought that this would be going on. But of course, we now know this sort of stuff has been going on for a very long time. Uh, and we've actually got various gatherings of former American diplomats and intelligence people that they were monitoring just about everything that went on. Mm -hmm. And there were people within the UK, uh, British at the American embassy, whose job full time was to monitor mm -hmm. in human <clears throat> intelligence as well as technical intelligence, uh, the activities of every trade union and every MP. It was all part of what the Labour attaches mm. were doing at the American Embassy. Everything was being wow. extremely closely watched. Mm. To make sure that nothing too radical ever happened. Yeah, exactly. I think... I, I mean, mean it, it's, it's interesting. I was just going to say that this business of, of sharing intelligence so as to um, swapping intelligence, as it were, to stay within national legality comes over in this, doesn't it, with Harry at one point yeah. in the car talking to Joan Cook. They're going along in the car and um, he says... Um, so Percy's people don't listen to our phone calls. Yes. The Americans listen, yes. and they tell Sir Percy what they hear. 
And I thought that was a wonderful line. No, back then, um, to, to, to put that, I wonder how many people actually watching the program back then would have twigged what that was about. But I mean, when I first heard about this, it was, I mean, this was probably Dr. Stan Monteith's program back in about 1990 or something on shortwave. Mm. And, uh, you know, this is considered to be uh, the stuff of conspiracy theory. Mm. <laughs> and yet there it was in a, a line in this TV production going out to the whole nation. I just wonder how many people realized that that was actually true, you know, in essence. I wonder, yeah, how much how much would people have known about surveillance? I don't know. It seems like a modern thing to the average citizen. I don't know. Mm. Well, there's a lot of it, wasn't there? I mean, this character Fiends was constantly looking at people's MI5 files. Yes. You would go back to the monitor and you'd see, yeah. you know, the lovely old um, digital display yes. on the on the monitor. Say, yeah. <laughs> and you'd see yeah. the various characters, you know. Amstrad. I used to have an Amstrad, <laughs> Amstrad like that with a black screen and green fonts. <laughs> It's, it's even more menacing somehow, isn't it? It's like yeah. raw data. <laughs> yeah. um, and I love some of the things that were there. You know, you'd have all the, the codes and things. It was a Lawrence Wainwright Chancellor, more moderate in the party. And then it would go, Thomas Newsom, Foreign Secretary, threatens to reform intelligence and security services. He's naive. He rejects the wisdom of security briefings. You know, I love this sort of... And, and there's another one. It's Joan Cook, who's the Home Secretary. She's Labour's radical conscience. Came to security notice while at Cambridge University. So she's been looked at all these years and notes have been taken oh, yeah. upon her and put in the database over many, many years. Um, this is right back then. Very interesting. And of course, we have in that interview with Jeremy Corbyn said that he was asking for his intelligence files. Mm. And uh, he said that he could have them, but only in redacted form. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that came out very much in this production, didn't it? Yeah, um, totally. Exactly the same, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Yes, yeah. yeah, that's right. Yeah. Was it Annie Marshall who was talking about MI5 files in, one of the, in an interview? You're right. What did she yeah. say? She said something like everybody of any importance in politics has got an MI5 file so that they're blackmailable, mm, that's <laughs> basically. <laughs> they're looking for stuff. Yes. Um, Do you think you have, Julian? No. <laughs> okay. ten, years of pod- ten years of podcasting, Julian. Oh, I see, in that sense. Well, I'm sure I've, I appear on some database somewhere, but I don't think uh, of any interest. Yeah. <laughs> MI5 files on dangerous podcasters. Yes. <laughs> Going back to the surveillance thing, it's, uh, yeah, it, we're so used to it now. I mean, I live in London, so you're used to cameras everywhere. You just ignore mm. them, really. But I suppose back then... It would be more an indication of a, of a dystopian future to have lots of shots of the CCTV cameras everywhere. Oh, hello. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> you can say hello, Oscar. Say hello. Get this extra oh. opinion. Of me. <laughs> yes. yes. What do you think of the very British clue, Oscar? <laughs> okay. So I'm going to mute the microphone while you carry on. Okay. Carry on. That's good. We always have a little visit there from Oscar, don't we? <laughs> Um, just go back to the actors. Yeah, I thought Keith Allen was just mm. perfect because he's yeah. mm. he's got that slight edge to him and that slight sort of idea that he might be quite dodgy. <laughs> yeah, and he's just come out of prison. Isn't he? What was he in prison for? The character contempt of court, I believe. Oh, was it? Was it? Yeah, yeah. to do with his reporting, I think. Um, I think he wouldn't reveal sources or something. He was commanded mm-hmm. to reveal sources, and he wouldn't do that. So it was contempt of court, something of that nature. Now, I was confused about that the first time, but I think I. Second time, it was clearer to me. Yeah. I just thought, why would Perkins choose somebody who'd just come out of prison? <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. But um, can I ask John, uh, in the book, do they give any more about Harry Perkins' background? 
No, and I don't have much recall of the book. I've more better recall in the recent years of the TV series. But just to throw in about the time period we're talking about, I think the book was 1982, Julian, I think. I think that's right, yes. Yeah. On, on, on which it was based. So there was a lot of radical opposition to American foreign policy with Reagan and the renewal of intermediate nuclear weapons based at Greenham Common and Molesworth. It was also a time when women were becoming deeply involved in politics. I mean, Glenys going down there, Greenham Common, the protest there was a largely women's movement organized thing. Mm. And from the other side of the pond, the Americans, which have now had access to documents which show that in that exact period of Chris writing this book, the Americans were very nervous of the future generation of Labour politicians hmm. because the generation, the immediate post-war generation, the Shirley Williams, Roy Hattersley, Dennis Healy generation were people who regarded connections with America in a very benign way obviously the part of the network that America had been involved in the Second World War and so on. Hmm. But by the time of the 60s, there was a generation arising of which Chris was one and I was another, who, of course, were critical of United States foreign policy in Vietnam, in Chile, and in various other things that we were getting to know about at that time, and also of American domestic involvement in British politics in different ways, which we may get onto. But it was such a concern in the United States that they set up this project, which I first exposed about 25 years ago, the British-American project, Hmm. um, to try and find young British politicians and journalists who could be brought back into line with American foreign policy thinking, something that uh, they'd begun to be a departure on the left from that. Kenneth's opposition, obviously, to nuclear weapons as a Labour leader was part of that as well. Yeah, you sent me a link to an article, which I will put in the notes at Declassified UK, for people to read it. It's called The Secretive US Embassy-Backed Group Cultivating the British Left. So it's all about this British-American product, BAP, set up in the 1980s with US embassy funding amid CIA concern about anti-American drift in the Labour Party. That's a great phrase, isn't it? Yeah. The lovely picture of uh, Keir Starmer there, actually, and this uh, young lady um, with some trophy or other. I I expose the existence of this because I'd lived in America and I had connections there. For various reasons in the late 80s, I went back and started digging around in the Kennedy archives and various things Hmm. and came across in the early 80s the existence of the British American Project and wrote about it in Tribune, the weekly paper that Chris Mullin had edited. He wasn't the editor at that time. He'd become an MP, I think. And this read to an outraged response from a Labour MP called George Robertson, who was the shadow defence secretary in the 90s. And, of course, it was George Robertson who became Tony Blair's defence secretary. And the same mm. George Robertson, who was secretary general of NATO, um, basically turned the key on the invasion of Afghanistan and then the invasion of Iraq, subsequently to 9-11. So I really got hammered by George Robertson for revealing the existence of this organisation of which he was a, a founding member, and then he was very much part of the pro-American wing 
of the Labour Party of that particular generation. Do you think an organisation like this might be something through which lecture tours in the US might be organised, do you think, John? Uh, oh, yeah. Because <laughs> this, this is what happened in the, in the series, isn't it? You had Lawrence Wainwright, the oh, yeah. Chancellor, who was having these nice lecture tours. Whether anybody listened to these lectures is another matter, but um, <laughs> guaranteed he was on side and therefore maybe he'll be the next leader of the Labour Party. <laughs> that was all set up. Yeah. And then, of course, Reg Smith, wasn't it? The character who was the, the power union oh, yeah. rep, mm. who just oh, put he... the spanner in the works on the whole thing um, yeah. and basically betrayed betrayed his roots by doing that. I mean, I don't, from my part, I don't wholly blame the Americans for this. Right. There were plenty of Britons from 1945 onwards. I met, remember meeting a guy who'd come out of Oxford and wanted a political career in the 50s. And he said, those of us who are politically ambitious sniffed the air, said, which side of the street is the sun going to shine for the next 30 years? Right. It's the American side of the street. Right. That's where we'll go. Yep. And the lecture tours, they started. Then mm. the Marshall Plan took trade unionists to America on tours to show how wonderful the American economy was in the 50s and 60s. And you can imagine these people going from a steelworks in Sheffield um, mm. at a time of rationing in the 50s, grim, polluted, north of England, yeah. and they get to spend a fortnight of freebies in the United States and show them how wonderful it is. Mm. So they became very pliant mm. in this kind of network, and it continued. So, sure. you know, the Millibands took American scholarships. Ed Balls took an American scholarship. Yvette Cooper took an American scholarship mm. after Oxford. <laughs> they all came back imbued with neoliberal economics and neoconservative politics. Yep. And so it's continued to that day. And yep. Jim Norty chaired the UK end of that operation when the American end was chaired by Paul Wolfowitz. <laughs> right. Wow. Yeah. That's how deep the network is. Um, mm. And it's continued mm. from 1945 mm. onwards. Mm. Yeah, I agree with you. It's wrong to sort of push this as a just an, an American it, thing. It's yeah. very much, a, well, a deep state establishment thing on an international level. And I think that yeah. that came over yeah. very clearly, actually, but particularly in the conversations between the cultural attaché at the American embassy, a lady called Chambers, who was obviously CIA, mm-hmm. and Fiends, of course, is MI5. Mm-hmm. You keep going back to these clandestine conversations they had, you know, I don't know, oh, yeah. throwing bread at ducks in, in, the, yeah. in the park, and they'd be t- talking about, mm, what needs to happen? So it was very much that sense that this, was, this wasn't like one nation or another nation. This was a, a stratum of a deep political reality, the establishment. Yes. So I agree with you. You can't just point at one side or the other. This is, uh, you know, it's not left, right or anything like that. It's, it's something that it goes back to that business of the yay into the Middle Ages, which we get with Sir yeah. Percy, where he yeah. said, you know, it's something that this never changes. This is a yes. this is the core of the state that never changes. It makes sure that it doesn't change wherever it's found. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah obviously. I, I wanted to come back. Mm, sorry. Obviously, it's been refined. But, yeah, I mean, people say mm. it probably goes back thousands of years, you know, or hundreds <laughs> of years. Yeah. Hard to prove, but yeah. Mm. It's all, I mean, I remember asking Dennis Healy once, who I worked with when I briefly worked for the Labour Party, and he was he'd been a communist before the war, and then fought in the war, and then became very pro-American in the post-war world. That was part of his animosity to Tony Benn. Um, you know what he thought British influence on American policy could be, and he said he felt at times 
like a little boy standing on a chair, reaching up to tug the arm of Uncle Sam. And from time to time, he was able to catch the sleeve of Uncle Sam and stop him doing something really silly. That was Dennis, and I think Mm. that was his realistic assessment of the British influence on this thing. But, of course, there were a lot of people in the British establishment who'd lost the empire and, in a sense, were feeling they got a second innings by being little Sir Echo to the United States. Well, I wanted to come back to you, John, about the anti-Semitism thing, because uh-huh. that came up, obviously, in the interview with Jeremy Corbyn. It was quite a big part of the conversation there. And when this, it's not something I looked into in any great detail at all, which is why it'd be interesting to hear what you have to say about it. But when it first came up in the media, it was immediately obvious to me that this was a propaganda thing, mm. blown out of all proportion, and it was just used as a means of discrediting Jeremy Corbyn, you know, in particular. Um, and in passing, I, I will say, you know, I'm talking about Jeremy Corbyn, not because I've, you know, I'm not died in the wool labour by any means, but I did vote for Jeremy Corbyn because he was, as I've said many times, the anti-war candidate. He represents, you know, being against the neoliberal world order, uh, globocap, as uh, CJ Hopkins calls it, um, prepared to question US foreign policy, that, that sort of thing. Um, but in some other respects, you know, um, disappointed with him. I think he should have been more outspoken about various things and have spoken his mind more rather than remaining too much in the Overton window at times. Um, but anyway, I agree. Yeah, I agree. But, but nevertheless, you know, um, a man of great integrity, I do respect and much maligned. And of course, the main way in which he was maligned was this nonsense, I believe, vastly exaggerated business about anti-Semitism in the absence of the opportunity to say, look, he's a, he's a red threat because what do you do when the Soviet Union doesn't exist anymore? Um, anyway, yeah. <laughs> you know, you've got to choose something else. Yeah. So, you have the weird thing of Corbyn being the new Hitler over here and Donald Trump being the new Hitler over there and they come from <laughs> opposite sides of the political spectrum what sense does that make anyway can you make any sense of this uh, John for us what, what happened with all this I think that during the Cold War the Americans and its supporters including the UK had an obvious enemy in the Soviet Union yeah. and that could be targeted and people were smeared because of their associations with the Soviet Union. And it's undeniable that the Soviet Union did fund the Communist Party in Britain. Right. I mean, money was handed over to keep the Morning Star going after the Hungarian Revolution in 56. Uh-huh. So it wasn't just the Americans influencing British politics. The Russians have a history of that. And sure. the Libyans tried in different ways. So all that's been going on. But the whole thrust of Netanyahu when you track down his policy, was to blame the criticism of Israel on the Palestinians, supported at that time by the Kremlin. And when the Kremlin was no more, they had to identify another enemy. And some of that was real, and it largely became Muslims and so on. And it was obvious if you followed American politics that any American politician from the 90s onwards who supported the Palestinians would basically get wiped out by the Israeli lobby in America. They would throw money at another candidate. Cynthia McKinney is one obvious example. I can send you links to that. Hmm. And it was obvious to me that once they tried criticisms of Jeremy Corbyn as a Czech spy and this oh, and yes. that, yes. they had to try something that would stick. <laughs> and yeah. I'm involved. I declare my interest. I'm 
supportive of many Jews who've been thrown out of the Labour Party for alleged anti-Semitism in the last few years, which on the face of it is ridiculous. Mm. Yes. But it's been a tactic. Nobody ever wants to be accused of anti-Semitism, mm. clearly, uh, after the Holocaust and everything else. That's an awful thing. But it makes it a very useful weapon mm. to attack critics of Israel. Mm. And it's a weapon which is also employed by those many forces in the world that support Israel for other reasons uh, to do with high technology, supply of weapons. Murdoch, obviously, is a huge supporter of Israel, the Daily Mail. Most of them, I mean, the Telegraph under Conrad Black was a huge supporter of Israel. And that whole thrust away from blaming the Soviet Union when it seemed to exist was moved into the war on terror. And of course, 9-11 was the spark to a lot of that kind of thing. Mm. And so it didn't surprise me at all to find that Jim Nochte was operating in the British American project and that Paul Wolfowitz, the number two at the Pentagon, right. was chairing the American side of it. Yeah. So it always seemed to me, long before Jeremy became leader, that anti-Semitism smear would be one that could be wheeled out and have been proven to be effective in the States. And it would be proven to be effective here mm. and accumulating to it all kinds of other people for whom Israel mm. and Palestine wasn't an issue, yes. but were happy to have any stick with which to beat Jeremy Corbyn, who I think was not well advised on these things and mm. I think didn't show the kind of easy to say from outside. He was under enormous pressures. Um, mm. But I think the, there were ways of dealing with it which he didn't employ. Yes, I mean, in that sense, he wasn't a Harry Perkins, was he? No. I mean, Harry Perkins, a, at the end, was, said that he was going to resign and read the autocue and all that. And he went off the autocue and blew the whole thing to the nation saying, look, this is a plot against me. Mm. And to be honest, you know, that, I, well, yeah, no. <laughs> I can't imagine Corbyn doing that, but perhaps he should have done, really. Well, is the, I mean, I've known, Difficult. I've known him for... 30 years um, and he's a thoroughly decent man mm. but he's never somebody who has ever occupied a position of leadership even in local government I mean you know to chair anything to lead any organization equips you with certain skills and he's never had the exposure to those kinds of demands upon him and I think he thought it was possible to be benign mm. towards bad actors right <laughs> um, right and they weren't in the game of being appeased. I mean, the Israel lobby in America and here can never be appeased. Um, they want to win. Mm. And Jeremy wasn't, he'd not, no preparation for dealing with that kind of fusillade of nastiness and unpleasantness at all. Right. And of course, when that happens, the people who are even nominally on his side begin to look and say, are we going to win here? Or do I want to be seen on his side when we go down? Mm. And so a number of them jump ship, left the party and all that kind of thing. Mm. So it's a sad it's a sad experience, but it was something I could yes. see coming for at least fifteen years before he became leader. Yeah. Uh, because Blair had been largely funded by the Israel lobby in Britain before he became leader and subsequent to it, Michael Levy, and similarly with Gordon Brown as well. So Corbyn was breaking into a very well-established pattern mm. of support by Israeli supporters who were obviously part of the same American establishment mm. network of things too. And once you've been slurred in that way, 
as being associated with anti-Semitism, it's incredibly difficult to recover from that, isn't it? Oh, you can't. No. It's an absolutely destructive... I mean, my friend Chris Williams, yes. who was the MP... Oh, yes. I mean, mm. I saw Chris a couple of weeks ago, and he's lost his career. You know, the whole <sighs> thing's gone. They're a very, very powerful force, and lots of decent people don't want to stand up against this because they seem to fear that they will be accused themselves of anti-Semitism. And they've got to think about their career, their prospects. Yeah. You've interviewed plenty of people, Piers Robinson and various other people, mm. who felt the harsh hand. Mm. Uh, and some of them have had to find a living in another country. Yes. Uh, I mean, that the, these people are are serious. Uh, and we now see the nature of Israel with the new election and the outright racist people who are now supporting Netanyahu in this regime. And it's it's a long way to probably dream of, uh, of the Israel that it was created after the war, in which the Labour Party on all sides, right and left, Gates, Gulta, Mikado, were all supportive of that. And it's turned out to be something extremely different. Um, and it doesn't take prisoners. <laughs> mm. yeah. on, on a lighter wow. side of this you sent me a link john to videos of keir starmer making pro-judaism um, <laughs> vlogs showing how how much he was appreciative of of jewish matters so uh, how, how cynical can you get at least that's the way i see it yeah. um, there we are it's <clears> particularly annoying for me because I have many Jewish comrades. I'm still in the Labour Party. I haven't right. been thrown out yet in Scotland. I don't think anybody notices me. <laughs> um, <laughs> but it's a shock. It's a deeply shocking thing that people who are the children of Holocaust survivors in the final years of their life are being accused by a Labour leadership of anti-Semitism. It's a deeply outrageous, morally corrupt mm. thing to be going on. And the one woman who I know of through a mutual friend was in the final weeks of her life mm. when she got a notice from Starmer's apparatchiks and the headquarters accusing her of anti-Semitism. Good Lord. And she died within three days. Oh, oh shocking. She was, shocking. She was dying anyway. And, mm. of course, hardly any of this is publicised anywhere. The Al Jazeera series on the lobby and the later one on the Labour files. Scarcely got a line of publicity in the mainstream news. But nearly all the key figures in Jewish Voice for Labour, lifelong anti-racists, you know, people doing decent work in education, social work and the rest of it all, all being disciplined and some sacked from the Labour Party for being anti-Semites. And it's a scandalous thing. Uh, so it's not about being Jewish, it's about where you stand on Israel and where you stand on progressive politics. And the anti-Semitism smear has been used in a very broad brush way to wipe people out of politics. And in some cases, it's wiped them out of their living, including Chris Williamson, of course, as well. Mm. Well, let's talk a little bit about Harold Wilson. Obviously, we've talked about Jeremy Corbyn, but it's, uh, of course, Harold Wilson back in the 70s, uh, mid-60s to mid-70s, as twice Prime Minister during that period, leader of the Labour Party and Prime Minister, that helped uh, serve to inspire Chris Mullins' novel, and hence the series that we're talking about. So, John, I get the impression that you know quite a bit about the plotting against Harold Wilson and his government, um, particularly in the 1970s. Can you... Um, can you tell us something about that? 
Yeah, I know a fair bit, not at first hand, but mm. my pal Robin Ramsey, who edits Lobster Magazine, jointly authored the book, uh, Stephen Doriel, back in 91, called Smear Wilson and the Secret State. Mm. And there clearly were serious efforts to bring him down. Yeah. Um, Peter Wright has, has said that. It was alleged, I mean, that, that Wilson inherited this terrible situation when he became leader because the previous leader, Gateskill, who died suddenly, was very pro-American. And the people around him, Roy Jenkins, Hattersley, Shirley Williams, they suddenly found that the leader that they devoted themselves to, and to NATO, and to membership of what became the EU, which was initially funded by the Americans as the European movement, um, suddenly found they've got in Wilson somebody who, in opposition, had been part of business links with the Soviet Union. And so all of that rumour mill from there developed Peter Wright, developed it, and various of the newspapers. And, of course, it was a bit like the Corbyn thing, in that Wilson, within the Labour Party, had many critics, and they were quite happy for him to be smeared with these allegations. All right. Um, um, because it would be rebound to their advantage if Wilson was found to be a Soviet agent and all the rest of it. And a lot of that came through Peter Wright, MI5, and James Angleton in the States. It was, mm. it was, he was obsessed right. about the communist threat. Yes, I saw BBC uh, production, a dramatisation of the journalists that uh, Wilson himself invited to, That's right. yeah, to, talk, exactly. to talk about this. And uh, yes, it said that uh, Angleton was quite paranoid about all this and had swallowed oh, all was. this business about uh, a Soviet defector, the famous Soviet defector, Anatoly Galitsyn, yeah, um, right. who had claimed that Wilson was KGB, he was an informant for the oh, KGB, yeah. and that Hugh Gateskill had been poisoned and all this. Yeah, yeah. And what I, the programme itself didn't go into, but I questioned myself is... You know, when you've got a defector, that's the perfect person to feed a narrative to, you know, get them to claim this is something real. I mean, I don't know whether he was nobbled himself. <laughs> you know, who knows? Yeah. The thing is, as with Corbyn, once you plant these suspicions in the public mind, hmm. then, as we were saying, it's very difficult to get rid of them. Yes. Um, because you then accuse, well, why are you wanting to cover this up and mm -hmm. are you a secret anti-Semite for challenging this right. or, yeah. and it was this, this exactly the same with Wilson and he got caught up in all of this and he had many enemies uh, within the Labour Party mm -hmm. his deputy George Brown was a fall down drunk and so he had nobody as a deputy he could rely on any more than Jeremy Corbyn had Tom Watson as a deputy right. he could rely on. Some quarters say that George Brown, Wilson's deputy, was a CIA asset. Uh, and he was certainly very close. He was very much part of that post-war, you know, we support America against the Soviet Union thrust within the Labour Party. Um, and so Wilson didn't have anybody dependable as deputy. Right. He had to be very cute. I mean, Joe Haynes, who was his press secretary, uh, was a very sharp operator for a former Daily Mirror journalist. And he tried to do what he could to protect Wilson, I think, to a large degree, although Tony Benn suggested that Joe Haynes might not have been as much of a help as he claimed he was. But anyway, <laughs> Wilson was subjected to smears, 
and they were promoted by MI5 and its many media allies. And they were certainly promoted in the United States as well as part of, I mean, Angleton was almost paranoid about all of this kind of stuff. It destroyed him in the end. I mean, he just became a complete crazy. And and it became so paranoid, again, according to this documentary or this dramatization, that there were very senior people in British military, and names were mentioned, actually, Major Alexander Greenwood, yeah. General Sir Walter Walker, yeah. um, who decided to, quote, protect the Queen and country against the Red Threat oh, yeah. by actually organizing, preparing to organize tens of thousands of people as a parallel army, a sort of um, paramilitary organization in, in case it was necessary to overthrow was absolutely astonishing i yeah i mean <laughs> i was i was shocked when i saw that dramatization yeah and and indeed sir david sterling who founded the sas oh, yeah. formed this secret group to infiltrate trade unions and uh, cause trouble at union meetings and all this i'm not surprised that this is a possibility you know but to actually see such a credible production of this sort of thing was real is quite remarkable yeah uh- and I think that's the context from which Chris Mullin and Alan Plater produced this. Yes. Uh, that they were aware, yes. uh, Chris particularly, because he'd been involved with the Ben campaign and been a tribute. He must have been privy to a lot of this maneuverings that went on that gave him the basis right. for writing this stuff. And certainly Ben will be privy to some of this because he'd moved from being a right-wing member of the Labour Party further left as the years went by. Mm. And so he'd know some of these characters. Mm. And Earl Mountbatten was involved in all of this. And Cecil King at the Daily Mirror. (laughs) Before we lose that, Lord Mountbatten, I was was amazed at that because um, he was going to be an acting prime minister in such a situation, apparently. And and, and the plans were put before the Queen Mother for approval, (laughs) apparently. So astonishing stuff. But but, but the thing... um, I don't want to hog this, but maybe I better let other people in. But <laughs> it's all, in my mind, very much to do with the end of empire yeah. and people within the British establishment, including the monarchy and the aristocracy and the city of London, all these things which you've done podcasts about with different people, all felt that we weren't what we were and they were looking for any possible reason as to why we weren't what we used to be. And Harold Wilson, I think, was somebody, if he could be smeared as being a Soviet agent or whatever, he could be then scapegoated for the lot of the failings of Britain as they felt it to be. Mm. And we were withdrawing from empire, you know, coming away from east of Suez. Dennis Healy had to mastermind that as defence secretary of reducing the budget and obviously this for a lot of people in the military and the intelligence services and in the upper ranks of the city yeah. was something that they didn't like happening. Mm. And Wilson was somebody who could be scapegoated for that. And because he was a clever guy, he was somebody who could be accused of, uh, of deception right, relatively right. easily, I think. Whereas Jeremy Corbyn wasn't that kind of guy. He could just be accused of naivety in in, in trying to make friends with people who had no intention of being friends with him. (laughs) 
Very interesting. Well, thank you ever so much for that background, John. I, I had a feeling you would know a lot about that. Um, and it's interesting to hear of these influences upon the production itself and the book, and of course, and then the production itself. Mm -hmm. um, I'd like to end really with looking at some notable scenes from the 1988 TV series, anything that really struck us. Um, there are so many, to be honest. Um, mm -hmm. I don't want to just uh, hog things here. I, I have a few. <laughs> so uh, anything that struck Anthony or Mark in particular? I don't think it was necessarily the way the scene was filmed, but with all these things, I always wonder if it was reality. At what point would the public start to think? Mm. And I think the road accident of um, Montague, mm. at that point, oh, I mean, yes. but then it's happened in reality. I mean, we've had things like, I don't know, Jeffrey Epstein in America. I mean, that's, mm. these stories do come and go, don't they? And, uh, mm. I'm wondering, yes. uh, in reality, what do you think would happen if, let's say, a Perkins figure did what he did at the end of the press conference? Well, can I just sure. can I just stick with the one about the advisor, the scientific advisor to the MOD? Mm. Montague Kowalski. Yeah, that's yeah, right. Yeah. And that's David. That's David Kelly, isn't it? Basically. Oh gosh. Yeah. Yes. 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 So he mm. he was actually in favour of uh, dismantling these nuclear weapons. He was been waiting for a prime minister who had the guts to do this, mm. um, and they needed him. And I suppose it was impossible to turn him because it was very clear that he was on side with this project. So it was decided to get rid of him with a plausible death, mm. which I think was very clever, wasn't it? When you actually see the diversion on the road and you see the temporary traffic lights and he has to mm. wait a specific period of time, then he gets the green light to go ahead. And of course, he then goes over the level crossing, mm. which is faulty and timed nicely with the train. And mm. that's the end of him. I presume the diversion would have been moved and the, the temporary traffic lights would have been taken away and it was just something that unfortunately happened on the road. Yeah. Very clever. very I think very believable as a setup, actually. Yeah. Um, so what would the news say? Just unfortunately cross this this line, you know? And the big thing is, um, the big thing we've talked about is the news cycle, isn't it? I mean, that's just... Yeah. You can't downplay how important that is, that the public... We can't speak for the whole public, obviously, but people I know and I talk to people or people on social media they just the tension is just constantly diverted so I think mm. so I know you wanted to talk about the scenes but mm. that was more thinking in terms of if this was reality you know or, yes mm. yeah you know it's interesting that that scene I think some of the reviews on IMDB and they sort of say oh well, that, that was a bit melodramatic a bit stagey <laughs> and it's interesting that it's the only scene in the whole film the whole three-part story where, where there's a sort of action scene hmm. everything else yeah. everything else is talking in rooms which mm -hmm. generally on telly is incredibly boring but it shows you mm -hmm. how i mean you didn't need that scene of him being killed at all i think you could have had some much more subtle uh thing where they perhaps would have exposed him they would have set him up in some way to make him seem not a credible person they could have done that. Yes. But it was an interesting that they just chose to have this, which presumably came from the novel. I don't know. And I thought it was a very good scene. It works very well. And it's also done really cleverly because you don't see anything. Just a shot of the train, shot of the car. Yeah, you don't see anything. You know what's going to happen. You didn't need to see the crash, did you? No, you didn't. At all. No. Um, but I thought it was, uh, well, prescient of David yes. Cameron, certainly. Mm. Certainly. Yes, yes. And yeah. John, eventually, John and I, we're going to talk about David Kelly, aren't we? <laughs> when I, I can yeah, get well, around to it, that will be fascinating. Oh, I'd definitely like to hear about that. Again, these things just disappear, I and mean, that never gets mentioned, does it? Mm -hmm. It's just gone away. I have a meetup group here in my town. Occasionally, I bring up things like that, and half the people in my group don't even know his name. It's incredible. 
and they were around at that time as well. It's not because they're wow. stupid. It's just because we're just bombarded with so much news now that, you know, it's yes. hard to keep. Yeah. And like I say, with Epstein as well, that's already gone away. And I mean, no one will ever talk about him ever again, I don't think. <laughs> you wait, you know, five years, you'll barely hear his name ever. <laughs> yes, very depressing. Yes, uh, yes, which I suppose is quite important. Why things like what we're doing now, talking about things from the past, is <laughs> yeah. good to keep these things alive. Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah, one scene I really like. So I suppose in a way it seems a little tacky, but um, I like it. Is the blackboard scene with uh, Fred, yeah. Harry's press secretary, played by Keith Allen, um, has worked out the conspiracy, hasn't he? And he's he's drawing all the connections on the board. <laughs> he sees all these connections in his mind, you know, the, the Wainwright and, and the union leader. They've been on these useless lecture tours to the United States. And the, connection, <laughs> the connection with uh, Faison, the, um, you know, the newspaper guy, and Alford yes. at the BBC, and they're all members of this club, um, the character called Liz, uh, Liz's dad. And Uncle Percy, Uncle Percy is also a member. This is the guy who heads up MI5. Yeah. And, you know, the various of them are, are on the General Advisory Committee of the BBCs. All these connections that he's seen. Um, but then it said, um, Harry says, oh, so it's a deliberate conspiracy, but mm. but no real evidence. And then Fred says, of course not. That's the whole point. These people don't sit in committee and plan the downfall of an elected government. They, yes. they don't keep any minutes. You can't actually prove it. You just have to know how it's done. And I thought that was a, a wonderful quote there. Because, I, I wrote know, that down. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, Julie. On, no, I was just going to say because people say things like, you know, oh, they couldn't, you know, how come WikiLeaks not got anything about nine eleven, etc. And I've always thought, yeah, but you know, do you keep notes about stuff like that? No, no, no. I think you just have to know how it's done. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. So um, I like that aspect of it very much, and there's something very real about that. I wrote down that quote, yeah, because many years ago we did a podcast called Truth Comedy, didn't we? And mm. we talked about George Carlin. George Carlin, there's a clip <laughs> on a TV show, he said exactly the same thing. You don't need a formal conspiracy. Right. You just need powerful people with the same interests. And it, and it all yes, works. Yes. I mean, obviously, there's phone calls. Sure. Probably are people meeting in rooms, but you get the point, yeah. Well, well it was yeah. said, I think it was said at the end of the Wilson uh, BBC thing that MI5 had done their own inquiry and found themselves to be not guilty. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and, and and but it also said is that, that were, comedy? No, that wasn't comedy. Right? <laughs> no, no. Um, and it also said something like um, because there were no records kept, well, they couldn't find any records. And thought, oh, okay, right. Well, in Yes Minister, there's always a fire, isn't there? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I keep coming back to it because it's just utter genius. And it is. As I said earlier, having that same actor in both, and he's just being slightly more exaggerated. Like the accent is more exaggerated in Yes Prime Minister, but essentially having that same actor, it really makes that link, doesn't it? But mm. It's just that fine line between the very good comedy and reality, you know? Mm, beautiful. Very, beautiful. very interesting, yeah. There's a couple of lines I wanted to just um, yeah. run by you. Yeah, what were the ones? Let me see what I've written down. Yeah, when um, Brown comes to Perkins uh, with this apparent, um, it's a forged document, isn't it, with apparent financial irregularities. Oh, yes. Perkins says, I get it. By the time anything's proved, the damage has already been done. So, you know, <laughs> no smoke without fire. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then the brilliant quote of Brown, you're a bad dream. You could destroy everything I believe in. You show alarming signs of turning into a major statesman. Wow. Which, again, if that was in a comedy, we'd be laughing because there are funny lines in this, aren't there? Mm. Oh, yeah, that one about uh, Mr. Perkins, you could destroy everything I believe in. That's where he says, uh, yay, even to the into the Middle Ages, isn't it? So, yes. <laughs> yeah, so his ancestors go right, right back. He somehow owns the nation, you know, he has the right to the way the nation is and always will be sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's a lovely scene, actually. You, 
I don't know if it was a bit over the top, but I liked it. You see his blue eyes, you know, picked out by the light. Yes. Um, to say, as if to say, you know, he's the pure blood, the blue blood. And what came to mind was that wonderful song by Lord Talola in um, Iolanthe with Gilton Sullivan um, called Blue Blood. As I, I'm always tempted to sing it. Blue blood, blue blood. Yeah, great song. Yeah. It just came to mind. It's a wonderful scene, though, um, where you see the, the two of them really reveal what's been going on. Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, so he shows these Swiss, for people not seeing it, the majority of people, um, these fake Swiss. Well, they're not fake, are they? I think they apply, they apply to something else, but they've been made to apply to Harry. Um, these Swiss bank account statements for $300,000, supposedly to do with, with the Russians. Mm. And um, Harry says, uh, you know, in South America, they'd call this a coup d'etat. Mm. And Percy says, but no firing squad, no torture, a very British coup, wouldn't you say? And that's when you see these blue eyes and uh, Harry has got to basically just got to resign. And of course he doesn't yeah. <laughs> in the end, but that's the way it's supposed And it's all been beautifully set up as well, hasn't it? Um, yeah. So um, Wainwright has been positioned to be the yeah. uh, the popular yeah. um, replacement because of some fake or manipulated poll by the newspapers to suggest that people really are in favour of Wainwright being the next leader. And and all this story about Harry's health problems, again, there's nothing to it at all, but it's been in the media. So it's just right for him to, to be able to say, well, I'm afraid now I have to resign because of health problems. Mm. I love the way those events were, those events and, and narratives were crafted. I, you know, I love it in a, I don't approve of it. <laughs> I no, just, I know what you know, mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It, was, it was well done. And one could imagine that sort of thing playing out in reality creating a narrative in which somebody then can nestle later on um, when they've been persuaded to take a certain course of action. Um, the, the, lovely the, scene. The Swiss, mm. the Swiss bank falsification mm. was actually based on a true falsification that was done against Edward Short, ah. who mm. was the deputy leader of the Labour Party in an effort to bring him down. His name was mentioned at some point, actually. Yeah. I yeah. think Harry mentioned him. Yeah, and in the play, it's Harry. But in reality, it was the deputy leader, Edward Short, and there were falsified Swiss bank accounts. Wow. So that's true. I mean, it's not true of Harry, because mm. obviously character of fiction. No. But that really did happen. And we know of other falsifications that have taken place wow. in other areas since. But the dynamics mean, in politics at least, and to a certain degree in journalism, which are the two worlds I probably know best, mm -hmm. is that lots of things are going on, but the people who want a future in either of those fields stay stumped mm -hmm. because they don't want to be exercising any critical factors in public which are going to jeopardise their career. Yes. yes. And my guess is... And it's only a guess. The next time I see Chris, we'll talk about this. My guess is that Chris was knowledgeable about a lot of these things directly himself mm. and also as editor of Tribune, knowing a lot of the PLP and a lot of the trade union leaders and all the people he met supporting Tony Benn uh, for the deputy leadership. And he brought a lot of those true experiences of things going wrong and people staying quiet for fear of embarrassing not just their own future, but that of other people. And there are lots of loyalties in different ways and there are Masonic networks within the Commons, within the Commons parliamentary lobby. There are Masonic links within the parliamentary party. Um, wow. And there's a funny story that Roy Hattersley tells against himself that somebody stopped him 
as he was leaving Westminster one night and he's all dressed up and they said, oh, where are you going? And, and Roy joked, oh, I'm off to the lodge. And the guy <laughs> says, we can set you up in Westminster if you like, Roy. And Hattersley was, Hattersley was joking. I mean, I praise the story, but Hattersley tells it very nicely that there are these other networks operating yes, as yeah. well. Uh, as well as the formal state things. Mm-hmm. Uh, and people are wary of them. They're aware of the power of when they step out of line mm-hmm. of the conformity principle of ambition mm-hmm. means that people will not usually follow them up. Yes. And when people do, it's very praiseworthy. And we've got plenty of examples mm-hmm. of the people who whistleblown on 9-11, whistleblown about NSA, whistleblown mm-hmm. about CIA. Mm-hmm. You've interviewed a lot of these people, Julian, and they're people of enormous courage and mm-hmm. determination. Absolutely. And there's Annie Machon, Cathy mm-hmm. Messiter, MI5, who spoke mm-hmm. out. These are people of enormous character and determination, but they're rarities, mm-hmm. um, and they simply get washed over in the tidal rush for people for their own ambition. Mm. Not that it's necessarily yeah. a selfish ambition, but a lot of these things that do exist get covered up. Yeah. And it behoves those of us who are no longer having to earn a living to be even more courageous in speaking out on behalf of those people who we know can't speak out because their circumstances are circumscribed in so many ways. Yeah. But then I suppose you'll be called past it, John. Oh, yeah. <laughs> or disgruntled, or whatever. Could be. <laughs> I've been both, both for at least 40 years, Julian. <laughs> I comfort myself with coaching purposes at Cricket here in Scotland, and that's my more small contribution. And also trying with what you do, which is in itself praiseworthy, in saying there are people speaking out, and they speak out here, and you can link people into what you're doing and it's particularly important to do it in a way that's relevant to the young i've given up on my generation we had the Mm. best of everything in britain baby boomers we had the best of everything and we've left a terrible legacy i believe and we have to do all we can to encourage the young and to educate them but in a gentle holding hand way rather than a didactic, you know, holding people down in a we know best. There's nothing less attractive to anybody. Yes. So my apologies for saying too much tonight. <laughs> no, no, no. It's very interesting. I just want to end on, um, I think it did come up, actually, the, the very last scene um, mm. where Harry has been basically told that he's got to resign on air for health problems and all this nonsense. <laughs> and the auto cue message has been sent to the newspapers all around the world and he's all ready to say it. And then he goes off script and everybody's shocked, you know. <laughs> Faison, the newspaper guy, uh, says, we can't do that, he's the Prime Minister, you know. <laughs> he says, I'm going to tell you the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. And Faison says, you can't do that, he's the Prime Minister. Yeah, um, there's that comedy but, element again. Yeah. <laughs> yes, it is. Yeah. Yes, and no, no, but it really, really does work in that context. Um, yeah. So, I mean, but then we get this ambiguity at the end. Mm. I didn't know what was going on, really, whether mm. it was the end of Harry or whether he was mm. going to stay there and change everything. And, and Mark, you looked into this, didn't you? And you got some information on this. Well, I just was looking on IMDb at people's reviews. Now, sort of take this with a pinch of salt, but there's no reason to disbelieve it. One of the reviewers on IMDb says, when I first watched Very British Coup, I was intrigued by the ambiguous ending. So this this reviewer wrote to Alan Plater uh, and got a letter back from him dated 7th of Feb 1990. And Alan Plater said, 
Uh, we had long hours of talks along the way, but essentially it was my idea that Perkins shouldn't resign, but should go to the country and tell the truth. So I think that was changed from the novel. Mm-hmm. Uh, the ending was deliberately ambiguous, and I have no idea what happens next. <laughs> so that's from the adapter of, of the novel. So apparently this reviewer wrote to Chris Mullen, who wrote the, the novel on which it was based, and he said to him, you ask about the hint at the end of the film of a possible military coup. The end of the film is deliberately vague in order to leave open a number of possibilities of which a military coup is one. You will recall there's also a line from the BBC World Service news bulletin, which you can just about hear. It says a statement is expected today from Buckingham Palace. Uh-huh. In other words, the Queen, although it's actually the King, obviously, in the drama, it is. is not necessarily obliged to call the leader of the largest party after election. He could, for example, call Wainwright. Uh, now, what position was Wainwright? Was he... Um, Chancellor. Chancellor, yeah. In the hope that he could put together a government comprising right-wing Labour rebels for the support of either parties. I must have been like you, Julian, when I saw it. I took it literally and just thought, oh, are they going to bomb the building or something? Because he had this very, very ominous shot panning out from his flat, which is sort of... On the, on a high-rise, a block of flats, and then you heard the helicopter getting louder and louder, and I thought, oh, is this, are they going to just blow up? I didn't know what was going on. Like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's a very strange ending, isn't it? Mm-hmm. So it was deliberately left ambiguous. So, yeah, yeah. I don't feel so bad. Now I, now I know it's like that. Um, no, my confusion I, makes sense. I didn't yeah. get the impression of a forthcoming military coup. That was, mm. I guess, looking at it again, yeah, I suppose that's an obvious interpretation, isn't it? Mm. Well, I, I want to think that Harry just, was successful and stayed in there and changed everything. That's yeah. what. That's what I. Yeah. In my naivety, yeah. that's what I want to. You go ahead and think that, Julian. <laughs> yes, I, I will. I will. Um, and it's interesting you mentioned there about the um, the king because this was set mm. in 1991, 1992 ish, wasn't mm. it? And by that time in the story, of course, the queen had passed on, presumably, and we have we have C three R written on the red box. So, yes, um, Charles III, Rex, um, and here we are all these years later, mm. and it's this year. <laughs> well, it's one of those um, funny things where story set to show you a brave new future, have a black American president, well, yeah, and, and a king. But now we're sort of over that, and it doesn't seem futuristic anymore, does it? No. <laughs> no. no. One of my favorite. sorry, can I just say quickly? Go on. yeah. I know I wasn't there when you were talking about it. One of my favorite scenes set up the end of the story, in, in a sense, when he phones the American president, and they, they have a scripted meeting don't they have a scripted conversation so both sides are just reading out a script which i thought was very funny and i don't know if it's true or not but it seems kind of like it might be true and then of course he just goes off piece and starts talking of his own views doesn't he and all the advisors are going what was going on what's going on which sort of sets up the end quite nicely i thought Mm, mm. yes a very individual and uh, attractive character as i said right at the beginning i really wish that he was prime minister Mm -hmm. Um, let's bring back ray mccanally and (laughs) say come on go on you do yes indeed (laughs) you do the job for us um with your your lovely sheffield accent um yeah great program i don't really want to call it a tv series because it almost brings it down it's it's not like a proper movie that we normally talk about but i'm going to say it's it's right up there and i do think well it was repeated wasn't it repeated quite soon afterwards as a movie i think it was shown as a movie Oh, okay. Yeah, right. So I think we can justifiably call it a a movie. A movie, excellent. Uh, Yeah, so I do recommend people to, if you can find a DVD of this somewhere, it really is wonderful to view, Mm. um, not only as a drama in its own right, but it just has so much to say about the reality 
of the world, the deep reality of what goes on in the world. And certainly I will put in the notes the interview with Jeremy Corbyn, uh, which is a really quite open, um, surprising interview. He, the most open I've heard him, actually, in the, the challenges that he faced as the Labour leader. Mm. And um, yeah, so seeing those connections is fantastic. And I'll also try to find a link to the BBC production about Harold Wilson. Um, yeah. The original, well, the link that I first found is gone. <laughs> um, so I don't know where that's available, but that's also worth a look as well. So to have all those resources and also to watch this drama is quite an eye-opener and it's a it's a wonderful production. So I'm, thank you ever so much, um, all of you, for coming on to talk about this. Uh, John, it's great to have you as a kind of special guest this time to bring in some of the deep background that you have to all this. Um, thank it's you. been fascinating. Um, and I feel like I've learned a lot through doing it. Many thanks. And I will send you some links for your show notes. Do. And just to pay tribute to one character towards the end of the film, who was Perkins' police bodyguard, played by Bernard Kay. Oh, yes. Oh, very good, yes. Who steps in to stop them, wiping him off the air. Um, oh, yes. He yeah. very much embodies a lot of people I know hmm. who've worked for the British state in different capacities and have a job and a career that they have to hold on to put food on the table for the kids. Hmm. But in moments of crisis like that, do the right thing. Mm. Yeah. Actually, he's a great actor, very underused at yeah. this, but he's a fantastic yeah. actor. Mm. Yeah, he is, mm. I agree. Mm. Uplifting moment to end on, actually. Praise those people who do such things. Mm. So thank you very much indeed. Again, chats for coming on. It's been a great discussion. You're welcome. Thanks for having me, Julian. Thank you, Julian. Pleasure. Yeah, very welcome, Julian. Cheers. Show notes for this programme can be found at The Minds Renewed, themindsrenewed.com, podcast music by the brilliant Anthony Rajakoff, attribution non-commercial Sharealike 4.0 International. You have been listening to me, Julian Charles, and my guests, John Booth, Anthony Rotuno, and Mark Campbell. And I very much look forward to speaking to you again in the near future. Music